I've got to present something as another thing to you, but ask you to to travel that false narrative with me, right? Yeah. Um, and 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 enjoy it. How do we both enjoy the false narrative? And I think that's what's so special about. That's what I love about the expression of deception this way. And to me, I don't view deception as a negative connotation all the time. Um, I view it as a naturalistic expression of of how humans have evolved. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host Kenneth Win. Being part of a culture of nearly a hundred million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Hi, Ndao. How are you? I'm good. Hi. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm visiting DC for Vietnam Society Week, and um, you were so gracious to open up your home so we can do this recording here. Of course. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, how did you find yourself in the United States? I understand you were born in Vietnam, right? I was. So I grew up in Vietnam. I was 13 when my family came over. Um, I, we were not boat people. We came over as part of a program called ODP, which is my uncle, who was a foreign exchange student, had come over. And then after the war ended, he sponsored us to come over. Um, we applied when my parents had me. I think I was maybe two months old. Wow. And it took 13 years to get over here. So my whole life in Vietnam, I kept hearing like, we're going to go to America. And I kept waiting. And I think after my eighth year, I stopped believing them that we were ever leaving. But yeah, we actually left. (laughs) And growing up, did you have any idea what you were going to be doing for the rest of your life? I mean, that's a a weird question, but did you ever have any premonition or inkling of anything that you wanted to become? Yeah, you know, my parents were really politically minded. Um, they talk about geopolitics a lot. Uh, we, around the time that I started remembering these conversations really well, there was talk about the U.S. Uh, opening up the embargo. This was about 1989, 1990. There were talks in the works. Um, so I and my father had studied to be a lawyer before the war ended. So I really wanted to pursue law earlier on. I thought that um, I was attracted to literature and it was a way to kind of straddle that how do you make money? But, you know, yeah. uh, as I was attracted to the letters, um, so I thought I would become a lawyer when I was young. And I think you got into like spoken word and performance yeah. arts, right? I did. We, um, my, I still write a lot of poetry and we had a group of the three of us, um, Jenny and Taylor and me. We had a group called My Piece. We did spoken word and we also hosted a, an open mic in Little Saigon for maybe three to four years. So it became, was it was kind of a, a good community gathering for a while. Yeah. So how do you go from that work, that scene, that creative sort of space mm-hmm. to 
doing the work that you do today and and we'll get into the work that you do today but that period of like creative creativity mm-hmm. and getting into that kind of like that world of of really not worrying about money and how do you yeah. go from there to becoming a successful businesswoman in the space that you're in today what what kind of things uh, created that transition for you oh you're very kind um so you know poetry and spoken word all of those community work all of that all of that community work was a hobby right i spent a lot of time doing that i never thought I could make a career of, of it. Um, I wrote a lot of poetry in Vietnamese, and I still sit on a, a board for a Vietnamese literary website uh, where we publish a lot of work outside of uh, the diaspora as was Vietnam. Um, but at the time, I was studying psychobiology, and I wanted to become a therapist. I wanted to go into clinical psychology. Um, And so I think a lot of us find ourselves straddling those two lines, right? So you do this for money, for career, and you do this as a hobby. Um, And, but I was, I wasn't, I never had a shy bone on my body, in my body. Um, You know, doing spoken word on stage, I was used to kind of being in a spotlight, so to speak. And, um... The clinical psych work was really important to me, but it prepped me for that intimate performance, right? That would later become such a big crux of my current work now, is this sort of performance space, but it's on a much more intimate level. So what led you to the transition? So... Around 2004, I was working for a nonprofit. It was a women's organization advocating abuse and battered women. Uh, I, I did a lot of case work there. Uh, I met my now, who's now my husband. Uh, he was a um, pickpocket. <laughs> and when I say that, people raise their eyebrow and they're like, what's a pickpocket got to do with entertainment? Well, there's this very niche brand branch of entertainment called uh pickpocket performance pickpocketing and he only does the 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 stealing on stage so he would tell you it's going to steal from you and then he he steals it and gives it back and when we met I watched the performance and it was really curious to me how one that could be accomplished how you could guide someone's attention to a certain space why he would do all of his stealing. I become really interested in that because it wasn't far off from clinical psych, you know? We spend a lot of time in clinical psych kind of looking at um, where you are spending your attention in your personal discovery. So it was already a question I was asking. So when we met, uh, his name is Apollo, I started looking at other ways that this could be used. And that led to the transition uh, into mentalism. Wow, what a a story. But I can't help but think if that meeting didn't happen, you would continue your trajectory in clinical psychology? Yes, yeah, I think I would pretty much would still be doing so. 
I don't know if I would would run across um, mentalism, mentalism some later point. There, it wasn't uh, popular in Vietnamese culture. It still isn't. It still isn't, right? Magic is known a little bit, but when we say magic, ảo thuật, we you think of Copperfield, David yeah. Copperfield, maybe David Blaine, um, and you know, very little of that is mentalism. Right. I mean, I don't think that it's there is even a word for mentalism in Vietnamese. I, I would even go as far as to say. In America, when you say mentalism, most people really don't understand what it really, really defines. Yeah, I, I think it's still very rarely known. Yeah. yeah. And so this meeting with Apollo, and I don't want to make it about Apollo because yeah, I want to make it okay. about... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm always like very aware because I don't... I, I, you know, mixing these stories... You know, we have to have an origin point for yeah. for how we get into these things. Um, but it sounds like mentalism and clinical psychology are kind of closely related, if not yeah. almost branches of the same um, field. I wasn't planning to become a mentalist. I plan to continue on with my clinical psych career. And... Um, At some point, I saw another mentalist perform, and he claimed that he was using psychology. And um, I, it was really curious to me because I came from psychology, and I thought, well, you can't do all of what you just did with just psychology. So what other educational history are you using? What other tenets, what other principles are you executing to get this done, uh, which is when I dove into that specific study a lot more. So you had this question about like what other, but did did you get it from him or did you have to go look for that and you have to go research what other tenets was he using? I had to go look for it. Because he wouldn't tell you, right? I mean, you, yeah. you didn't go to him to yeah. ask him, right? Yeah, he, he doesn't really give lectures. His name's Darren Brown. He's a famous mentalist in the UK still. Uh, so I, I looked into it. And of course, knowing Apollo helped because he could point me to different literature and different ways to access the literature, different people to talk to, which is really important in something like magic, where there's no conventional Um, university right. that teaches it. You have to you have to seek. You have to seek for a, look for a mentor who will give you the lessons. Wow, that is difficult. I, same with comedy, I imagine too. Right, comedy is sort of like this art form that's you know it can go so many different ways. It's just really about entertaining somebody, and captivating their attention. Yeah, I think it's it's a really it it's still a very niche way to study something that kind of mentormenty you know um, relationship is still really predominant but, in magic. but why isn't there a university or a vocational school that teaches it I think because um, the tradition of magic has always been pretty secretive you've got to earn your way in and wow. um, you can't quite just apply for something. There is a school out of South Africa in Cape Town that teaches magic and it's 
quite established. It was established before apartheid ended. I recently only went this year. I was really amazed to see. And they use, they teach magic to kids at a, a very young age. And they use magic to teach them other disciplines in life. Honesty, you know, all yeah. of these cool things. So when I think about what you just said, the kids, uh, a school, I, I think about me buying magic kits for my kids yeah. and there's like 35 magic tricks in this kit. Yeah. So when I think about like a university or a vocational school, it probably has, it, it probably is able to break up a curriculum of yes. certain magic tricks. Do Would you say there's like a magic 101? If you think about like people who want to get into magic yeah. they can say okay well here's like cards yeah. here is dice here's the hat tricks yeah. here's the wand tricks is there a 101 that a curriculum could be built around that you have to like cover these bases first and then you can gradually get to the comp more complicated stuff i think yes and no um if you're going to become a real magician a good magician yeah. yes there is magic 101 one that uh, has to be traversed. If you're just wanting to do a couple of tricks, there are tricks yeah. you could just purchase and do, but it won't teach you any foundational skill set that you That's need. That's the question. I'm, I'm, yeah, foundational. So there is sort of a bedrock that you can get, get into. Yes. Yeah, there is. And uh, you might hear, you know, there is illusion, stage illusions. So that's what you think of when you think of Copperfield, probably. These big boxes. Production. Or uh, Siegfried and, and Roy, yeah. where the tigers, you know, uh, those are stage illusions. Then you also might think of the fan production uh, that we call that stage manipulation. Then there's close-up magic, which is what I love. Uh, and there's cards. There's a big tradition of, of card close-up magic, coins, magic with coins. And both cards and coins will teach you sleight of hand basic that you need. And that is very useful because it teaches a, um, a bedrock for you to think about attention, to think about sight lines, to think about what your audience is thinking or looking at. So fascinating. Yeah. And... and it's really about, is it really about hand-to-eye coordination and kind of the speed? Or is it really just mastering the other person's psychology, the other person's way of looking at it? And what I'm, what I'm, what I'm asking is, mm -hmm. in athletics, right? Like if you're in sports, you have to really be good at throwing the ball or hitting the racket a certain way and really getting it down. Yeah. But I think in magic, it's more of an interactional um, activity where the other person, the is the practice more on trying to figure out what the other person's uh, seeing in you? Yeah. Or is it more about the coordination of your body trying to deliver the trick? I think it's both. Um, you have, you will need the sleight of hand and you need that sneaky physical um, direction at some point. But you also need to understand the basic psychological framework that someone watching a um, magic scenario or mentalism scenario might be paying attention to. It's a very unique 
situation when you watch magic, right? You've agreed to be deceived. It's it's a social contract yeah. that you sign up for, and that that kind of playful deception is at the core of that. But you're also suspicious the whole time, so you're looking out for hints or clues. And the magician or the mentalist have to be well versed in how you might be trying to deduce how something's done. So when you first started out. I mean, I, I can imagine when you first start out, you are trying to figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. And you're making mistakes because people are seeing things that you are not well rehearsed at. Yeah. Is there a learning curve in the beginning? Um, and how much messing up are you doing because how people are, are, are receiving that information. So you can't just go out and say, you know, I want to be a music magician and then just conquer the, the movements, but you kind of have to have a starting place. And, you know, a lot of people are just like, you know, watching this novice, like, yeah. can you talk about that early, the early days of mm -hmm. performing and kind of getting comfortable with, with the, with the craft? So it depends on the specialty in magic, right? So if you're looking at stage manipulation, production, illusion, you can practice that a lot more than, um, let's say, close-up magic. Mm. Um, you can practice close-up magic as well. There's a lot of sleight of hand to practice, but I think that now we're talking about sight lines, where someone is seated to to and what they're able to see visually um so going back to your question let me see if i can answer this in a simplified way because it can be a long answer as well um you have to take risk and you know wow. where you're gonna you you have to calculate where you're gonna take those risks right so I guess to put it simply, maybe first you do it for your friends and your family, you try something out, and then you only reserve the really good stuff, the material you've already mastered for your clients. But it's a rotating, um, it's a rotating material set all the time. It's, it's much like what you were saying about comedians. Um, the timing for comedians, the timing of some bits that they do might be a lot more sophisticated, more well-versed than others. And they might choose to do that in their, you know, on their tour versus Jerry Seinfeld goes to a small, yeah. you know, off the beaten path comedy club to try out some of his new material. Um, so you have to make that calculation. What were some of the early... Um tricks or movements that you brought to the to your performances i i failed a lot um and i think this is really important because to me i learned a lot about failure i learned that failure gives you information yeah. when you don't fail you don't get conflicting information it doesn't help you change the way you approach something i failed a lot and because i Yes, I want to safeguard the body of secrets that is magic and mentalism. But at the same time, if I genuinely fail, I would explain it to my audience. I would say this is the psychological framework around how, you know, I would try to fool you. Now, obviously, you, you saw some of this. And, and I think that really helped me connect to them because that 
that opened up what a rich history and psychological underpinning that magic has. Your ability to be open about your failure to an audience, um, I, it just it's counterintuitive to me, but it also reminds me that it's participatory. If the audience kind of knows that there's failure, yeah. but that could be like part of the act where you are building sort of a little bit more trust. But yeah. do you play into that with them? I choose sometimes, but a lot of it in the beginning was genuine. Um, I, it took me a long time to realize, but the one of the things that I don't like about magic, there's few things I don't like. There's a lot I love. But one of the things I don't like is magic usually puts the audience to ask the same question. And that's the how question. How did you do that? How is that done? Um, I don't want them to just ask the how question. I want them to ask the why question. Why do you do magic? Why is this interesting to me? Why do I get fooled by magic? And, and, and I think I discovered that by failing, by being vulnerable. Like, look at all the magicians that you, you can bring to mind immediately. They don't seem vulnerable, right? They're always succeeding. They always have a superpower. Yeah. And I don't know that that makes for a collaborative story between the performer and the audience. How could I, anybody walk away from a magic performance thinking about the why? Because I, when, I, when I'm thinking about being entertained, I just think about the how constantly. Yeah. But to get somebody to think about the why, what do, what do you mean by that? And how can you, first of all, what do you mean by that? And how can you get somebody to question the why? So the why is what my current work now revolves around a lot. So I think... You know, I'm going to let out a secret, which is magic is not often real. Maybe there's real magic. But what you see that is the performance of magic is illusion, right? There's a craft to it. There's a framework to how it's done. Um, and how we do that is by taking advantage of how someone perceives the world. Your, you construct a perception a perception of the world, but there's pockets inside, uh, inside of that perception. There's a famous quote, and, and I'll have to get the author, but um, the quote goes, everything you see, oh, it's Rene Magritte. He said, everything you see hides another thing. And when you're paying attention to something, you're missing out on something else. There's always an opportunity cost to your perception. There's often uh, an opportunity cost. So that's what magicians and especially mentalists take advantage of. So I don't know if I succeed all the time, but when I'm performing, I'm trying to get people to ask not how do I do that, but to ask how, how am I and why am I getting fooled by this? Because I may be able to do something that can be fooling, but it's your brain, your eyes, your sense-making of the world that's fooling you. It's not just me. How much of this thinking affects your personal existence in the world? How much of this training becomes how you perceive the random person on the street that you're dealing with? 
I think it's all the time. Uh, it's you know, it's hard to to not be it. It's very much who I am. Um, I question everything. I'm I'm curious about everything because I'm always wondering what's another way to look at this. And and this goes back to my early childhood growing up in Vietnam. Um, you know, we, we grew up and it was already is a communist, you know, government by the time I was growing up. So we followed a communist uh, framework in school. Uh, my teachers, some of them were from the north. Um, but when I went home, my parents are, you know, anti-communist. So this kind of conflict mm framed me to look at everything from different angles. It prepped me to go, oh, okay, that's how you see it, but how, how might this other person see it? And why is it that you can't see what they see? And fast forward to now, I'm still asking that. What is it that you see? Why can't this person see what you see? That's what mentalism takes advantage of as well. I would be living in so much frustration if I had that kind of framework, because everything that we're looking at, whether it's government or music or uh, some live performance, we're thinking about what are we not seeing or even in dating or marriage, yeah. right? There are things that we can't see. There's things that we're not aware of. How could I, I, I couldn't imagine existing in the world where there's things that you could see and things that you cannot see and questioning every single scenario. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I said this, this phrase a long time ago, and um, some of my coworkers really like it. They made me a t-shirt, but it says, what if what is isn't. Um, it's very cognitively expensive yeah. to live this way. Um, and you have to make choices about where you're going to do it, when you're going to do it when to turn it off, when is it harmful? Because it's harmful, right? Sometimes my friend just wants me to listen to him and not to say, have you looked at the other person's perspective? He doesn't need that, you know? So I think I, think I, I have to make that choice all the time. And I think there's some cultural constructs with being Vietnamese American or being Vietnamese in Vietnam there's all kinds of cultural constructs that we exist in, probably from my experience being Vietnamese American, that there are things that we show in the world being in America and there are things that we don't. Yeah. And you kind of like, you use certain things to your advantage. And because of that, I feel sometimes that I am not authentic to the world around me. And I have to like calibrate myself to be just more honest with the world or how I'm being perceived. Yeah. For example, like wearing an yai in public. Yeah. For me, sometimes that feels a sleight of hand where it's like, I feel like it's me. I feel like that's part of me, but I didn't grow up in that culture. I didn't grow up wearing an yai. Yeah. So it, there's all of these factors that I, I, it really rocks me to my core sometimes about uh, what we leave and what we take. Yeah. How, how do you feel about sort of like that world and, you know, there's two different um, cultures and contexts that you're dealing with all the time. Yeah, so I think there's a few 
context we're talking about here. So um, the way that I understand American culture to be, there is more unification between the individual in any setting, right? Um, in in Vietnam, in Vietnamese culture, we're, we're, we have a, a deep Confucian tradition, um, and the individual is sort of the last social unit. Yeah, Confucian, not confusion. Yes, I'm sorry, Confucian, yes. <laughs> no, I just want the audience <laughs> to, yeah. to, to recognize that. I know, yes. The, the, see, this is me coming here at 13. The accents will come out. I'm not even bringing that up. I'm just, because you could have said Confucian, but I think I, you know, just yes, the audience might understand course. it as confusion yeah. because we're talking about confusion here. Yes, yes. Confucius-led yes. tradition. Um the the individual is the last social unit, yeah. right? There's the country, the family, and then the individual. And your different people, one person is a different person in different contexts. So I think about that a lot when I think about authenticity in a, a place like the U.S. where it's a much more low-context culture. And by low-context, I mean... Sort of what you see is what you get, you you know? Yeah, I understood that right away, what you said, because that makes sense. I mean, I don't know what low context means, but when you say low context in in relation to American culture, very clear, it's simple. Yeah, what you see is what What you you get. get. Um, And people don't spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, you might be a, a, a slightly different person to me as a friend than you are as a son or as a husband. And I'm not talking about dishonesty. I'm just talking about the, the selection of the self that we choose to engage with that social context. Um, as far as authenticity, I think for people who go in and out of doors of cultures like you and me, that that authenticity is not binary you know it's it's a it's a journey it's a discovery and something that maybe wasn't authentic to you five years ago is authentic to you now because you're constantly going into one culture or another um so i think it's in it's flux right yeah and into infinity yeah that flux is constantly going in and out for example there are so many things that i'm ashamed about the way i thought about my culture as a vietnamese person and the pride i had as a as a white guy right Mm. like i felt like i was fully blended into white american culture but now i look back and i'm like um there are very good things about the shame and there's very good things about becoming white american like a white american guy yeah uh but when you get out of that context there's some really bad things about shame and there's bad things about wanting to become Amer- like this white american guy yeah. but everything exists in between there's these shades that that exist in between that we have to give ourselves grace to 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 be I think so. I would love to to talk about that. <laughs> Is there a, a interview Ken a <laughs> podcast coming soon? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I get asked that all the time, but I'm not ready for that yet. Okay. Maybe <laughs> but, after the 400. But, but you, could, you could always ask me a question. I, I don't mind that. I wouldn't. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I, this is a conversation. So Great. if you have a question, please, like, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I think I, we, we may have talked about this before we started the podcast, but it was when you have 300 episodes in a series, the way that you start to see how people answer your questions must have changed. And do you ever listen to old podcasts and see there was a completely di different direction that could have taken Yes. And I would even, as you're asking me this question, I'm thinking about phases, right? Mm -hmm. But this is just a very basic breakdown because I thought about that question earlier when you asked me. Yeah. The first phase was, you know, uh, getting my nerves down and controlled. So yeah. I'm speaking at a, a million miles an hour, right? I'm speaking, speaking, I'm not listening. So that was like the first phase to get yeah. rid, to get that. The second phase that I feel like I'm in right now is that ability to, to really listen and focus on what is being said and mm -hmm. learning sort of how to process it and then coming back to you with a, with a pertinent question or idea. Yeah. I think the third phase is just becoming me, which mm -hmm. is like, I'm a, I'm a much crazier and wild guy. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm a lot funnier in real life and I'm not at that point. So I think at the beginning of this interview, I was like very uh, uncomfortable yeah. Uh, yeah, sitting here with you, I was very yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, now I, 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 I have to remind myself to break free and to physically, yeah. you know, um, be a little bit more relaxed and open and funnier and be myself, which is very difficult. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm glad you bring that up um, because that, that plays into the mentalism work as well, how different people behave differently in different contexts and what you're trying to tease out yeah. of someone when you're performing is a really, really critical factor. When did you get um, comfortable with the idea of being you and being fully present, being able to be fully present in the work that you're doing? I, I don't know that I am all the time. Mm. I, I really try to be, I try to get into the flow, but you're floating so many yeah. different threads of thought. You're jumping between your point of view, your audience point of view, um, the actual methodology point of view that you have to accomplish. And then you get also, you're confronted with information that you're getting from the person, right? And if you're being fully human and fully present, you have you should respond to that. And I think this is where sometimes mentalists and magicians can fail their audience because they prioritize the performance. And I don't know that they fail their audience, but you have to make a choice. You come into sensitive information about someone, do you reveal that? Maybe revealing that is really good for the performance, but whose role are you playing? Mm. So that's that's a tricky question to answer, I think. You know, as I think about performing and the work that you do, I think about how much iteration that you're probably doing during the performance. But is your work while you're performing foolproof, which means is there times where you're pretty sure that nothing is going to fail? Or do you go into these performances with a little bit of a risk 
of things not turning out the way you want? It's fair to say there's always a little bit of a risk, wow. and and but usually the bigger risk reveal the most reward, right? So you just have to make that balance decision when you're choosing the material. Can, can you give me an example of risk to reward? Um. So. So there is a psychological framework behind some of the the tricks. We'll call them not in a diminishing way, but just to simplify. However, I don't want to use so much of the methodology. Some sometimes I want to just be able to see what exists between me and you, or me and an audience member, and and I. Think that can be felt. I think when people can feel when I'm really putting myself out there, um, it might be the micro, you know, tonal changes in my voice. But people can feel it, and they get. I think people become more invested because they are taking. They, if you're asking an audience to invest themselves, then you've got to invest yourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. I I can't fathom what that even means because, on one hand, you're trying to basically not control your mind, but you're trying to be present, and on the other hand, you're trying to do something very technical. Something very technical. Something very sneaky. I've got to present something as another thing to you, but ask you to to travel that false narrative with me, right? Yeah. Um. And 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 enjoy it. How do we both enjoy the false narrative? And I think that's what's so special about. That's what I love about the expression of deception this way. And to me, I don't view deception as a negative connotation all the time. Um, I view it as a naturalistic expression of of how humans have evolved um and as well as animals lots of animals deceive so but mentalism and magic is a really fun playful way to explore how we get deceived we both have daughters that are six years old mm-hmm. uh and i try to be as honest with my daughter as possible yeah and not deceive her and not give her and sometimes i don't know if that's to the detriment of Um, her reality, or but I just try to keep her as honest as possible, and my son as honest as. But what about you? Because you see the world in a very different way: yeah. deception and sleight of hand, and raising a daughter without the full truth could be an advantage. Like how how do you make up? Of the way that you 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 raise your your kid. So um, when we lived in Los Angeles, we had a, a home, and that was uh, that had a secret room, and we actually hid this part of the house from my daughter for the first three years of her life. Um, we wanted her to have a. I'm gonna. Pardon me. I'm going to use an American reference here, which is we wanted her to have that Narnia moment, you know, that what if what is isn't moment. That oh, something that I thought was true isn't, but it just inspires wonder and not resentment. Um, 
And that was a real commitment to do, you know, because it wasn't a big house. It was just a little townhouse. And um, it was also a guest room. So the guests had to to also hide the entrance to the secret room. And on her third, close to her third birthday, but it was around Christmas time, we actually made a book. Apollo, my husband and me made a book that she could follow and find clues to the secret room. And it became a, a really potent and salient memory for her. And I think since then, we've used that to to talk to her about what's a good secret. Um, we don't really say deception yet because of the connotation that it has in in popular culture and most people, but it's a secret, right? So what's a good secret? What's a secret that you can make to, to um, surprise someone, to show someone that you've been working on something for them? The element of surprise is such a big part of so many of those good secrets. Why did you do it so early in her life, though? Because they say you don't really remember until you're probably five. Why did you do it then? Because we, we also, this is a real social experiment, right? I don't know for sure how she would perceive it. I, this, she's my only daughter. We weren't sure. So we had to make a decision about when she would still view it as wonder and not as my parents kept this from me. Um, I will never know for sure if it was the right age, I think, but that's decision, the decision that we made at that time. Wow. I would, I'm so curious what she would think, you know, in her teenage years about that. I, I would really, I'm so interested in hearing in the future what she thought of, or if she even remembered. Yeah, she, so she still has the book and I think that helps her with remembering, yeah, with yeah. remembering it. Yeah. Now, when there are these journeys of artists, uh, whether you're music singing, you know, you play the guitar, or you, you want to be a magician, uh, there are, you know, uh, segments to the journey. There's uh, steps along the way. Some people never make it out of certain levels. Um, and the Vietnamese parent side of our, our parents' generation are always worried about arriving uh, financially, uh, pursuing mm -hmm. our, our art. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between somebody who gets to the level, made it to a, a, a level that you're at, versus the magician who continues to, to, to struggle and strive financially year after year? What, what are the components of arriving at the high levels of, of singing, of magic, of the creative arts? Uh, you're very kind. I think it's, you know, I... I get really weary of this arrival idea. I was always exposed to it. You know, my parents, all, all of our parents were always wanting us to, to get to this place where they no longer had to worry about us, right? To know that we were okay. Um, and for a long time, I could not turn down any work in my mind. You know, it took me such a long time to even just leave my day job to perform full time. Um, 
that I couldn't turn down any work. Any point that, that there was an offer to do a show, I would take it because I was so afraid that what if the show stopped coming at some point. And I don't know if that's, that's an a entrepreneur mentality or um, an immigrant mentality. It's probably everything. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different ways to make money in magic. You can perform. You can also create magic, invent magic for other performing magicians to do. Um, I don't uh, do the invention part. I, I like performing, but I also do a lot of the consulting, which is using magic as a tool to teach people about how they might misperceive and um, how that misperception is comprised of any any number of blind spots that will, if you learn about them, you you gain an awareness of them and hopefully it can lead you not to no longer have the blind spots, but to make better decisions about having those blind spots. That sounds like a, a really um, interesting things for corporation and universities and people of, of groups of people to, to learn because this is not something that we often think about. No, yeah, and it's something I never thought I would do. Um, yeah, it's amazing. How did you, or you're, you're laughing about something, but before I forget, how did you land in that sort of mind, uh, mindset that this is something that we can present to uh, clients, corporations, or, or bodies of people? I think it's, um, so it's a, it's a mutual journey. So it's a business that Apollo and I have formed together, and he had a couple of really interesting theories about pickpocketing and and that a couple of neuroscientists wanted to test. And with my background, we really enter into the world more of cognitive science. And we had a lot of support from that community in asking cognitive science questions about magic and illusion, how it can inform a better understanding of the way we see or missee the world. Um, and we didn't think to make a career of it, really. It's, it's you open one door and you see there's, there are a lot of opportunity here. So that's, that's how it happened was, you know, I would perform, I would talk about what we do, and same with him, and people get curious about what is it that that goes backstage that can teach them about blind spots. And is the teaching work that you do and the actual performance work that you do uh, sort of neck and neck, or are you leaning more towards the, the teaching work? And the second part of that question is, do you prefer any of those two more than the other? Um, I think you need to perform in order to teach. You need to have that training um, in order to ask someone else to learn, right? I think I prefer the teaching, oh, wow. in all honesty, because I get more... Maybe it's the clinical psych part of me, you know. Um, there's always a desire of that I have to have a mutual discovery. And I feel that I can get to that place more if I'm teaching rather than just performing. Yes, it's amazing. 
mentalism can can be amazing. It can be really fun, really entertaining. But unless you get to explain some things about it, there, you won't get to that discovery as an audience member. In in a pre-interview, you did a trick. You asked me to pull my credit card out, and you read numbers on the credit card without ever seeing it. Yeah. How long does it take to get to that point, and does everybody reach that point? If I train for it, will I get to that point? That that has a very particular methodology. Um, and not anyone can reach there, but if you can, it would probably take about two to three years. Why can't everybody reach that point? Um, that I can't say because it would give the secret away. And, you know, let me say something about magic secrets because I feel like sometimes people are like, oh, okay, you, you can't tell me, you know, whatever. I think... What's really important to understand about secret is that it's not mine to give, right? It's a method that someone else came up with. uh, And it's like IP. It's not my IP to give away. So when, you know, the hush-hush around magic can can seem a little overprotective sometimes. So I just thought I'd clarify why. Wow, I I never thought of it in those terms where it's like somebody's IP and you just don't want to violate another intellectual property. Yeah. You don't want to just give away somebody's trade secrets. But then that means that there is somebody who owns that trick in the world or is it the governing, I mean, not not governing, but is it just a body of magicians that you just don't want to betray? Or does that belong to somebody, what you just did? It's been, so that belongs partly to someone and partly to, to me. Um, and so I can't give just my part away. Um, if I say something about it, it would be giving all of it away. As far as, is it, uh, is it the law? Is it a governing body of magicians? It is a, a culture, cultural courtesy. Um, and it's been very hard to legislate about IP and magic, right? But I think, I think we, there's a lot of us that just pay that respect to a craft that's given us so much. Um, and so when you hear about someone like the mass magician or people who expose tricks online, um, it just, we don't view that very well because it's not theirs to give in a way. Yeah. It doesn't sound cool when it they do that. It doesn't sound cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it really is. It feels like a violation. Yeah. It's not a nice thing to do, right? Because, um, you, one, it's not yours to give. And two, the context in which you give it, are you giving it and explaining it in a way that would inform the audience of the psychological framework that it takes. Um, usually that's just giving the secret and it feels unsatisfying to, to the, the audience member. It feels like, oh, that's it? That's how they did it? Yeah. And I think that's a disservice to magic. So there's two magicians in your house. Do you often shop talk? Do you often break down stuff? Or do you keep things a secret in terms of your own craft from each other? Uh, we shop talk all the time. <laughs> 
it's really bad around here. I don't, I'm not even sure we can have a conversation that doesn't relate to work or, or what we do together. We try things on each other that we learn. Uh, so yes, at some point we'll talk about the methodology, yeah. but yes, we do try things on each other. And I love being, being fooled. I, lo- I still love that moment of, could it be the- this or could it be this? So I don't, you know, when I set out to learn mentalism and magic, I, I wasn't one of those people who looked for how it was done. You I were there to enjoy it. Yeah, I was there yeah. to enjoy it. And then one day I accidentally saw how it was done. And it blew my mind. I was completely blown away by how much understanding of human cognition it took to 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 invent these tricks. Okay. Can you can you explain that moment that you got to see behind the curtain? I mean, what was that opportunity? So I, I was witnessing something that, uh, that actually Apollo was performing. I had to take a call. So I walk away. And when I came back, I was no longer under a, the spell, as you call it. When you're watching a magic wow. performance, we're telling you a story. It's easier to tell you the story if you don't walk away. Because you can track it the whole time, and it's easier for you to stay in track with that false narrative. The moment you walk away, the moment is more likely for you to see other things. And if you see other things, you might see how it's done. So that's what happened. I walked away. I came back. I saw something that if I had stayed there, I wouldn't be able to make sense of it. But because I walked away when I came back... um, it stood out to me and, and then it dawned on me that that's how it was done. And then I thought, I want to, I want to do that. I want to create this alternate reality for people. That is the most counterintuitive thing I've ever heard. Because if you think about it, right, you want to be there the whole time. This is really awesome. You want to sit there as an audience member the whole time to figure out what they're doing. Yeah. But the reality is, if you step away and you don't get all the pieces, you come back, you get, you got the full picture. Yeah, you might, because as, as a magician or mentalist, we're trying to lead you down a narrative, right? We're controlling all the details. We're setting up all the frame. So let me, let me cite a uh, cognitive sci- science example. So have you ever heard of false memory creation? Yes. Okay. So there's a really popular study that Elizabeth Loftus did, and it was um, an interview that police interrogators would give after someone witnessed an accident. So the first person who interviewed the witness would ask either this question, how fast do you think the cars were going uh, when they collided into each other? Uh, a, 10 to 20 miles, B, 20 to 30 miles, so on and so forth, right? Question B, question two, how fast do you think the cars were going when they smashed into each other? A, 10 to 20, B, 20 to 30, and so on and so forth. So much of the time, people who were given the collided gave a lower speed 
limit for the cars. And when they remembered later, they conflated that. They said they saw the cars going at about. They don't remember the question. So that's what we're trying mm. to do in a performance. We're trying to either frame the linguistic context in which you see a situation, because if you see it this way, you're going to leave out all the other details. Yeah. That kind of precision is something that I think comes deeply with this territory, because semantics and the idea that every word. Really matters yeah. is so important to the work that you do. It is. It's really important. It's not just every word, but every word when, every word to whom, and at when, uh, around whom. Uh, so I think you know I, I credit my Vietnamese upbringing because. We don't just say hello, you. You know me, I. We have different pronouns for people, and there's so much more, in my opinion, linguistic specificity in Vietnamese than there is in English. Uh, or maybe because I learned English later, I don't know. But to me, there is. So I felt like I was kind of set up for it. Can you perform the stuff that you do um, in English to a Vietnamese audience in Vietnamese? It would have to be worked on before I yeah, do it. I can imagine. It, yeah. It's it's not. It's ritualistic. A shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's rituals that that really need words that need to be contoured to the action that you're performing, right? That's so well said. Yes, absolutely. Will we ever see it? I would like to. I think that um, Vietnam Vietnamese people can really one they would really like mentalism and two they could really benefit from understanding mentalism as a psychological approach um, because we were people who came from a country that were in and out of war and every war left a psychological framework on the country and I think it's useful for us to think What are some of the things we've inherited? What can we discard? What can we keep? Going back to what you were saying about what's authenticity, right? So I think a lot of us carry around things that we can question that would be fun and useful for us to question. So I think yes, I would like to to take that to the Vietnamese audience because I think there would be good utility, and I think people would like it. Yeah, and we can set that up. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we can yeah. set that up. Do you ever think that you will bring this to mainstream Vietnam? Um, I think about that sometimes. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of you know, um, the everyday kind of like income making to be made here, and. I think building this business has been really rewarding for me because I didn't know if it could happen. I want to test to see if it works um, because everything. I don't know if you feel this way. I don't know if other people you've had on the podcast feel this way. I feel like it has to be. I want it to be perfect, you know. By by the time that that if I go back to Vietnam, I want it to be perfect because that's. Such an important place for me. I don't want them to, to get the experimental yeah. version. Yeah, the 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 
the perfect person to do this is you because your Vietnamese language skill and your crossover into mainstream America and the understanding of the linguistics that is involved in this, it, you know, there's nobody at that level that can really bring this to Vietnam. And it's exciting to think about certain things being virgin territory in Vietnam, certain, mm. right? If you think about yeah. Ao it's, it's not, it's not what we think of um, at the, the level it is developed here. Um, yeah. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I'm just saying it's just something that we have never seen it's in new. Vietnam. We've seen basic magic, I'm sure, yeah. but this is a different branch that's even kind of new to the United States in, in American, you know, modern, you know, um, context. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Presented in this way, it is pretty new here. Yeah. Um, you think of mediumship. That's mentalism. It's just it's presented differently. You think of psychic phenomenon. I don't know if all psychics are real. Most of the one I've met are mentalists. They use a craft to do it. Um, there are people I've performed mentalism for that believe I am psychic. I'm not psychic. Yeah, I use wow. a craft. Um, it's hard to tell people otherwise. But but do the psychics that are doing mentalism? know that they're not psychics or are they performing mentalism out of sort of like this um, trial and error and they've stumbled on the mentalist techniques and then now they think they're psychics my gosh that's a really astute observation um that's precisely it some of them do know some of them are are intentionally deceptive and some of them by trial and error they are they may be using a craft, but they believe that it's a skill that, or a superpower that only they have. Yeah, we call them shut eyes. Shut guys? Shut eyes. Shut eyes. Yeah. Why shut eyes? Because they're intentionally closed, they've closed their eyes to the truth, which is the craft. And, and you're only talking about psychics? that are. Th mm -hmm. That's what you name them? Yeah. Or do you call shut eyes to... Uh, uh, any kind of hack in the in the business? Uh, no, just the psychics. Just, psychics. just the psychics, yeah. This is so interesting because this is something that I didn't come to the table thinking about, right? But as yeah. you're explaining it, I'm like, oh, you could have a potential to learn mm. and pick up these techniques as you're doing this psychic yeah. service to, to, to unknowing, you know, yeah. um, clients. And you just learn it. And then, but you think that this is in the realm of, but it's almost, if you think about how sneaky religion could be, it's almost in that realm. Yeah, I think, you know, now we're in kind of controversial territory. Yeah. So I don't know if there are real psychics out there, right? People ask me all the time, do you think all psychics are fake? And I said, I don't know. I just know that I've met a lot of them. And all the ones that I've met use a methodology, whether they accept it or not. So, yes, so many of us are incredibly intuitive, so are incredibly observant, are incredibly psychologically agile, so that we can gauge and moderate the conversation we're having with someone, right? And we can lead ourselves to believe that we have a power that other people don't have. And... I, in, in the case of that, it's not really my job to tell them, hey, I think you're self-deceived. Just like, just like, you know, I'm, I'll say it here officially, I'm agnostic. 
But it is not my job to tell someone who has a deep religious belief that what they believe isn't true because I don't know. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's safe to say that we should always encourage people to believe or not believe yeah. according to what they're feeling in whatever context that they're they're living in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but going back, you you said out thought, so it reminded me. It's really interesting when you think about the word out thought, which is out, uh, the illusory, right, and thought. A craft. craft. Um, is there a word f- that is the equivalent of magic? No. There's a word for miracle. Uh, Fepla. Fepla. And there's a word for illusion. And we'll say that's outward. Mm-hmm. There's outward, you know, delusion. Um, there is outward. I'm sorry, outward is actually delusion. delusion. And outward is hallucination. Um, so when you think about linguistic specificity, now I, I think a lot about can Vietnamese people believe in magic or do we all think it's illusion? Is there a difference? No, there's not. There's not a breakdown. Yeah. There's, there's, this is such a great point because as we get down and drill down into linguistics, and you know, my dad said this to me as a kid. He goes, uh, and he made up some random number. He, and he said he made up the number. He goes, like, think about this. Like, if you think about English and the layers of different languages over the, whatever, thousand years, uh, all of these different languages come in to create different words. Yeah. And let's just say there's a half a million words in the English language, uh, but there probably is only 100,000 words in the Vietnamese. So mm. if we only have 100,000 words versus 500,000 words, then we are limited to the expansion of what is possible. Yeah. Right? So so now magic and mentalism is something that's unexplored entirely in Vietnamese society today. I mean, Mm. as far as I know, there might be, I mean, I, if anybody's listening, I'd like to be educated yes, on that. Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. I would love that too. Yeah, that's really interesting, which is why I think we go back to this really contextual of Absolutely. verbal expressions, right? Yeah. Um, where you say something, when you say it, to whom you say it. Yeah. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you today? It means that I have a set of lenses that other people don't have uh, that I can access. Um, And I take it to be an advantage uh, all the time because it allows me to to embrace perspective taking a lot easier um, than someone who didn't grow up with you know, it might not just be Vietnamese. It's it's another culture immersion, right? Um, but the specific thing about Vietnamese is that our history is so complicated and so complex, and our diaspora is so complicated and so so complex, um, and that you you can't simplify things. You can't um, push things into binary directions. And while that's tiring and it requires a lot of explaining to people, I do love it. I, I love 
inspiring people to, not inspiring, I love asking people to make the leap to try to understand. Yeah. You know, I do hope in the future that you can bring your work into the Vietnamese American community first. Okay. This is just what I'm envisioning. Yeah. This is what I'm hoping for you because, yeah. I mean, it, on, on, on some reward level for you, it might not, it might not be the same as it is for somebody like me. Mm -hmm. um, and what I, what I mean by that is um, my hope for the Vietnamese American or diaspora or Vietnamese in Vietnam, uh, my hopes and dreams are different uh, than, than, than a lot of people. I just want to expose our community to things that we don't have. Mm. You know, so I hope that we can have Anh Dao one day doing this work in Vietnamese, in our language, because I think coupled with the context of Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. uh, political things that we, we don't see, mm -hmm. gay rights, all of these things can be sort of, the door can just be cracked open a little bit at a time mm -hmm. if they can see the context in mentalism and the way that, because I know where you stand uh, in a lot of um, ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that that openness being brought into the Vietnamese American community and then in Vietnam eventually would be such a fascinating journey for me, from a selfish perspective. I would, would love to see that. Thank you. Um, I think I feel a responsibility to do so at some point. Um, I do think that you make all these really incredible observations, but I, th I think that is really insightful what you said, is that sometimes the work that ends up mattering the most is the invisible ones, right? It's all the doors that you don't know that you saw behind, but you did. And then the revelation or the moment of insight feels so sudden and 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 uh and all at once but it, it really isn't it's all of this you know unearthing work that you've already been doing and and yeah so i i hope to be a part of that work i imagine this, I compare it to sort of like Malcolm Gladwell breaks down different reasons society happens, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have different phenomenons. Why did uh, Korean airlines crash so many planes compared to the rest of the world in the 90s? Or why is it that some, uh, why are most baseball players professionally born in the months of, I think it was January, February, March, yeah. right? He breaks all these things down. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, this is not magic. This is not, uh, this is just rooted in things that we don't see. Yes. And you're like the Malcolm Gladwell of sort of like the, 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 the ment I, I'm not saying you're the Malcolm Gladwell, but the, the work is like Malcolm Gladwell's work yeah. where you, um, you don't get, we don't get to see the behind the scenes, but in the cultural context of being like a Vietnamese American, if you stage something like a show and we, we do this, uh, or you do some explaining about how biased we are in the community and then you perform yeah. that might be able to open up the community's eyes all over the world about our biases. I mean, I, it's a program that you would have to really write and, and, and create, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's something that we, based on our limited vocabulary, like we just talked about, and I mean, semantics, you know, all of that vocabulary, yeah. it's not 
it's not there. So then when you bring in somebody who has this, uh, basically new technology that you bring into um, this group of people, we could perhaps see things very differently. Yeah, I, thank you. Uh, I would love to do that. Uh, we will we'll have to plot something. Yeah. Um, magic is one of the oldest technology, I think, um, because it uses so many different it leverages so many different disciplines. It leverages language, it leverages visual perception, um, it leverages um, s- situational framework and and psycholo- sorry, sociology and anthropology as well. So I think it is one of the oldest technologies. Um, but it isn't one that Vietnam has a lot of resources. Yeah. Um, I, I was looking into how many magic books were translated into Vietnamese. Uh, there are not that many. They're starting to have some lecture tours for magic in Vietnam. A couple of my friends actually went to one, but it's still it's still not as popular as it is here now. And even in the U.S., I feel like magic is getting a rebrand lately. People are seeing magicians and mentalists not as just like, oh, come do my kid's party, uh, as having something to say about the way people perceive things. That's really exciting because not that all magicians or mentalists think about the psychological aspect, but the ones that do have something valuable to say, I believe. Yeah, and there's an yeah. expansion of, of, of um, cognition. There's an, expans- an, an expansion of awareness uh, as we're existing in the world. That brings me to another idea, which is as I am traversing in your shoes, I think that for me, I would go down a very dark path. I would... You know, it's magical. It's powers that you're, you you have tools that you could manipulate. How are you mitigating this? I mean, I can imagine you and Apollo both, like, if you lose everything, you'll be fine. Because you can really do some some dark stuff to, to get out of, right? Of, 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 you could pickpocket, you could trick, you could, yeah. you could do all these wonderful things. But, but I imagine that it bleeds into your daily life in terms of like moral and ethical decisions that you can kind of play with in your brain. Do you jump around in your mind and does it kind of like ever corrode the sense of like ethics and, and morality for you? I think it, it helps sharpen it. Because you have to ask questions about them all the time. Like, is this the right thing to do? Should I, I really want my friend to say yes to going to this restaurant with me. Should I ask her a question in this way so she's more likely to go? Um, You know. So you are thinking about this in real time. I am. I'm always thinking about it. I'm always thinking about what's okay for me to do. What is a boundary I should not cross? It comes at some also very real losses of, of you know, doing the wrong thing in a friendship. You know, I, I had a friend who, it wasn't my place to really look at what she was doing. She was engaged in some relationship dishonesty. And it, but it wasn't really my place, right? My place was to be there for her as a friend. Um, but I let that seep in and our friendship is, is no longer there because I couldn't contain this aspect of my, my thinking skill set into where it should be. 
So it's, I think it's a tricky thing a lot of the times. It, from the simple, like asking your friend to go to a restaurant to the yeah. complicated. Um, but speaking of speaking of of Malcolm Gladwell and speaking of all of the hidden, invisible things that have an influence on our our everyday behavior. Um, before we started the podcast, I asked you to think about someone that inspires you on a regular basis. And um, you can you think of that person now? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, it's a is is it a, a man? Yeah. Okay. And he's well known. Yeah, he inspires yeah, sure. a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I I I don't know that there are any there's anything as good as 2008 Barack Obama. I mean, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> he, yeah, he's inspires me on a daily basis. That's as fucking well. crazy. How did you do that? Um, did you? You have. I gave you an envelope as well. Yeah. And you thought of. You also thought of a time. Like an hour and. Can you open the envelope? What is the time that you thought of, first of all? Did I, did I think of, or was it on the... Yeah, mm-hmm, on the... Do you want me to say it? Yeah. Uh, it was 1500, which is 3 p.m. 3 p.m., okay. Go ahead and open the envelope that... And you, that's been in your pocket, yeah? Yeah, it been, it's been in my pocket since I've uh, arrived. Okay. I... I'm like shaking. <laughs> this is so nerve-wracking. It's okay. It's just a time. This is crazy. Yeah, it says 3 p.m. Do you want to show it? It's weird, huh? Yeah, it's very weird. Um, so, so I don't know if that helps to answer your question. Obviously, there's a situational context to all of this. Uh, but I'm... I'm really hoping that I can, I can get to a point in my work where I feel like I can translate it into a comprehensible and comprehensive um, collection to to add something to the American Vietnamese experience. Yeah, this this whole time today has made me question: What else are we missing? You know? Yeah. It. Hundreds of years. What what else are we missing? And I don't mean it in a money aspect or opportunity aspect. I mean it purely as a informational or experiential context. We, as a country of a hundred million people now in Vietnam, yeah, could use an infusion of ideas. Uh, and they are we. They are very open to this infusion of new ideas, and I think um, the time is ripe for people like you and other people, other Vietnamese people in the world, to to bring this sort of contribution that we've been lucky enough to to gather up in, in outside of Vietnam and, and bring it to our communities, because it's such a, a phenomenal 
it's a phenomenal experience for me to sit here and to hear these things today, but I can't imagine like on a big stage, um, stadium level or small club size, I can't imagine what it would do for uh, refocusing understanding and biases in our communities. Yeah, that's exciting work. I, I thank you for, for framing it that way. I hadn't quite thought about it that way before. And so thank you for that insight. It gives me something to work for. And out, thank you so much for allowing me in your home today um, and having this wonderful um, conversation with you. I've learned so much from the conversation and not just learning hard facts, but learning things that I don't know that I don't know. Oh, that is the highest, that is the highest compliment, really. It's, it's learning things that you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah. yeah. It's Thanks so, again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.